There are many, many businesses for sale out there, but the majority of them probably do not actually make good acquisitions for the loan acquisition entrepreneur. Ryan Doyle understands this well. Ryan is himself a searcher in the trenches right now, looking at listing after listing, trying to find the right business. Heather Anderson is a lender who specializes in SBA loans for searchers and has been closely involved in countless search acquisitions. The both of them, Ryan as searcher and Heather as lender, join me today to share a list of criteria you should use to quickly dismiss a business that would not make for a good acquisition. Quickly being the operative word. It's easy to waste weeks and even months of your life on a potential acquisition that a more experienced person could have told you, hey, this is a problem with this business that you should have seen at the outset and moved on. Here are Ryan Doyle and Heather Anderson to explain what some of these problems can be. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Ryan Doyle and Heather Anderson, thank you both for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having thank us. Thanks for having us. Ryan, you are a searcher. You're actively out there in the trenches looking for a business to buy. Heather, you're director of the search lending practice at Live Oak Bank. So you are working week in, week out to help searchers get loans, usually SBA loans, to buy businesses. What we're going to talk about today is time killers in search and how to avoid them. So time is so precious in search particularly for full-time searchers like you, Ryan, because full-time searchers are often not earning income as they search, not to mention spending money on deals, which is expensive. So you've got your life burn rate plus deal costs, and it adds up very quickly. So anything that we can do to become more efficient as searchers is extremely valuable. And one of the biggest areas to become more efficient is learning when to pursue the deal you're working on or to discard it and move on to the next. Understanding the time killers that we're gonna to cover today will help you do just that. Ryan, you are the original author of this list of time killers, um, but start us off with a quick bio on you, elaborate a little bit on, on what I've already said, and then tell us about the genesis of, of this list of time killers. Sure, sure, and, and thanks again, Will, for having me on. Um, so uh, I'm a little bit of a, a finance journeyman. I uh, spent about 15 years on Wall Street uh, across a variety of different roles. Um, started in PE, uh, moved over to a boutique investment bank. Uh, and then from there, I spent some time at a rating agency uh, while I went to business school on Saturdays. Um, and then after graduation is where I really shifted to a more traditional investment banking track. Um, I'd say the one common thread, it's definitely not a linear path here, but uh, I basically focused in, almost entirely on financial institutions. And so that's kind of where it created a lot of opportunity for me uh, through, through, through all these different firms that gained uh, you know, a lot of interesting roles and responsibilities to that process. Okay. And what led you to, to search? Um, so I, I've always kind of been... Uh, I guess, interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm, you know, from a family of, of small business owners, uh, have, have fond memories of spending time at my, my dad's office and warehouse, um, going to conferences and had flirted with the idea of doing something more entrepreneurial, you know, went in business school, um, you know, 
tried to kick around a few different ideas with some classmates, but nothing really took off and just always felt the need uh, for, for more capital to really get something going on my own. Um, and then, you know, after I graduated, I, you know, I basically financed my, my business school degree and, you know, I had this, this really specific industry expertise that I really wanted to leverage. And so I really just went to work from there and uh, focused on that entirely for, for, you know, seven, seven years or so um, until it's kind of cliche, but um, essentially I was, I was flying back, back to New York. Uh, I was traveling still for, through COVID. Um, and I had, uh, the, you know, the buy then build book everyone talks about, um, had this bad habit of really, uh, it's kind of a banker move I could imagine. Um, but you just, I just bought lots of books on Kindle that I never read. And then this one <laughs> somehow made its way into my library and I just had read it. And I was like, wow, this is, it's interesting because I'd spent my entire career working with banks, uh, spent a lot of time on credit, lending, obviously knew the SBA, but I didn't know that you could finance an acquisition with an SBA loan. And, you know, the, the capital that's required to do that is was kind of within my reach. So this is this kind of light bulb moment. And so, uh, you know, did a little bit of networking with folks uh, that had done it um, from my business school class. I vaguely remembered a few people talking about it at the time. It wasn't that big back then. Um, and then, yeah, then after that year's kind of uh, bonus cycle, I, I decided to kind of pursue this full time, 100%. So none of the folks that you'd learned that you'd met in your career post business school ever talked about this. This was, this wasn't in the air at any of the financial firms that you worked in. No, it was, uh, no. And there weren't any classes when I was in school about it. I do remember people talking about it at lunch one time, like vaguely. Um, but then <laughs> there's one person that I knew well, actually, that, that I got along with really well that was doing it. And I just didn't know what it was called. Um, and he was, he was basically rolling up landscapers out in California for, uh, since graduation. So I touched base with him and, um, you know, got a little bit of a lay of the land. Heather, I want to get you in here uh, as well. Um, I, I think 99% of the people listening to this will already know uh, you and Live Oak, but do, but indulge me anyway and, and just give me a quick, uh, tell, tell, tell the people who you are, please, for, for that 1% who doesn't know. Absolutely. This is Heather Anderson. I'm co-director of Sponsor Finance for uh, Search Fund Lending for Live Oak Bank. Uh, we have a vertical in the bank that specializes in providing both SBA loans and conventional loans for self-funded searchers and traditionally funded searchers to buy a small business uh, to become the CEO of. Great. And, and Live Oak Bank is just a huge name in the space. They've, they're, they're really kind of top of the list for, for, many, um, for many searchers. Uh, and they put out a lot of content. And in fact, Heather and Ryan worked, um, Ryan originated this list. And we're going to hear about that in just a second from you, Ryan. Um, and then Heather and Live Oak worked with Ryan to actually publish this um, as, as a formal piece of content. And we'll, of course, link in the show notes um, and all that. Ryan, so I want to hear about your search, but but just um, I don't want to bury the lead here. So tell me about the the origination of this. Uh, where where did you come up with this list of time killers, and then and then take us into your search? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, I, I was working on a deal that just had died, and this was a little bit part of my my morning process, uh, where I'll, I'll go through really just mostly my email box and just kind of fill out a, a database that I keep of deals that I've looked at, and one of the data fields is you know why I killed it. And, um, and I just started noticing these patterns where I was just like, this is kind of crazy how much garbage is out there. <laughs> um, mm. and, uh, and so I kind of put it out there in, in Twitter just to see, you know, if other folks were thinking the same or, um, you know, come across the same. And then also just curious if there's others that, you know, I hadn't been, um, identifying as you know, key time killers that, uh, people can contribute. So this list is is actually 15 items long. We're not going to get to all 15 today, but we're going to get about halfway through the list. Um, but what so what you found in your in your spreadsheet of deals that were that were dying or that you were moving beyond? Um, do they just some of the same the same reasons jumped out again and again? And is the is the list ranked like is number one the most common time killer on down? Um, maybe probably. Um, I. Yeah, I think I kind of, I wrote it more to flow. I think there's some things that dovetail. Um, so, but I would definitely say just, I mean, looking at the list, we're going to talk about valuation first. That would probably be number one. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, and just before we get in, into the meat of, of this list, just tell us a little bit about your search. When did you start? How long have you been doing it? Um, size, industry, any geographic constraints, all the, all the, the uh, top, top line points about it. Yeah, sure. Um, I would characterize myself as really a non-traditional um, self-funded searcher. 
Uh, I'm more geographic focused. Um, so coastal Southeast, Dallas, Houston markets. And then I like to say Mountain West, but that's really been passive. I actually haven't really been actively searching that, uh, in there, but it's essentially places that um, my wife and I would like to live. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of industry, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of the cliche, uh, you know, positive characteristics that you expect within a, with, with you know, searchers to look for. So evergreen, stable growth, stable margins, low CapEx requirements, um, you know, recurring revenue, repeat business, sticky, diversified customer bases, um, fragmented markets. But ultimately, I'm looking for like GARP types of investments so, or opportunities. So growth at a reasonable price. Um, and then that really has t- led me to probably some of the more popular uh, search sectors, um, services businesses um, within residential, residential services, um, light manufacturing, um, some commercial services, and then um, have, have looked at a few kind of niche uh, industrial types of services. And how long have you been at it? Uh, about a year, a little over a year now. Okay. And how would you say it's going? How 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 you feeling? Let me take your pulse here. Uh, it's it's. I'm not gonna lie. It's uh, it's as advertised. It's 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 it's. it's uh, <laughs> searches is, is 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 tough. It's 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 not easy. It's it's you know definitely finding a, a needle in a haystack. Uh, numbers game, a uh, bit of a grind, but with lots of ups and downs. It's just really, you know, it was one thing I think I you know anticipated going in. I, obviously, working on deals, I had you know understanding that a lot of it's very challenging to get a deal across the finish line, even in corporate world. Um, but it's, I think it's even harder in, in this, this part of the market. So, um, you know, it's, and it's difficult not to get emotionally invested in a deal that you're excited about. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to enjoy the process. I, I, it's really um, been great in meeting new people, learning new business models, especially someone that's been so focused, hyper-focused on one industry for so long. It's, it's just, um, just refreshing to, to dig in into other types of models. Um, and, um, you know, and I've gotten close on a few things that's, that's given me hope. Um, a couple things currently in, 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 you know, in the, in the hopper. So, um, you know, cautiously optimistic, but yeah, you know, it's always one of those things that searchers are always thinking about, you know, how do I fill the top of the funnel? So that's something that that's always top of mind for me. Never yeah, can really sure. relax. You say it's as advertised, um, that, you know, that it being difficult is anything more or less, difficult than you expected or is it pretty much the lonely slog uh that you thought it would be <laughs> yeah uh uh i'd say one thing that i guess w- uh, is a little bit more difficult than i anticipated would, would was really just getting a deal to you know to get under loi really this negotiation process mm-hmm. has been mm-hmm. um especially for proprietary outreach deals um where uh there's just a, a huge amount of um I think there's just a lot of education, you know, to the seller, uh, you know, there's not a lot of sophistication, not surprisingly, but, um, you know, you, you just find yourself spending a lot of time explaining really basic concepts and then it, it's, and you're also trying to sell yourself for them to think of you as a steward for their business. And, you know, that's, that's something that, um, I kind of anticipated, but not, didn't fully appreciate until, until now. Yeah. And, but you're still feeling the proprietary is worth your time because I, I just, I, I feel like I've talked to so many self-funded who uh, try it and then ultimately are like, you know, it was just, it, the response rate was so low. Um, I, you know, if I had just invested all the time I was doing in proprietary into, you know, uh, in my broker relationships and, and filling my, filling my funnel through brokered, uh, brokered deals, but just kind of enhancing my brokered outreach, um, I might've been more successful, but h- how are you thinking about this in this moment of time? Uh, yeah, at this point, I I'd say in terms of deals that excite me or interest me, it's probably two thirds, one third proprietary source versus broker. Um, and I'd say, yeah. I think you have to kind of do both because the, the proprietary outreach is just such a, slow burn that there's going to be times where, you know, you, you send, you send out 25 letters or 25, whatever your process is for, for reach out, um, or outreach. Um, there's just going to be downtime where you might as well be looking at deals. And then there are, there are occasional deals that come from brokers that are interesting. You just you know, yeah. have to move quick and it's going to be competitive. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for all that, Ryan. It's, it's really, it's it, so many, all, essentially all of my guests are people who have already completed their search. So it's, it's, it's great to have somebody on who's, who's in the thick of it. Let's get into this list. So uh, again, these are time killers in search. And if we can figure out, we as searchers can figure out how to um, 
to, to really reduce the time that we spend on, on, on a bad deal um, will be ahead of the game. Number one you have is, as you said, Ryan, is, is valuation. So what do you mean by that? How, is, how can valuation be a time killer? So, I mean, I think everyone goes into this search reading, reading the books and, and what you read on Twitter. And there's kind of this bogey of two to four times, you know, SDE or even EBITDA. And, um, and the reality is that most of these deals that go to market um, are rarely priced at that. Um, and, you know, it's just a highly inefficient market. Um, pricing's all over the place. And we're also in a really unique time with COVID. Uh, and so earnings are very lumpy. And so where you have a business that might be listed off of a headline EBITDA number that, you know, at four times, it might be up 100% year over year, or, you know, pre-COVID. And it's really an eight or nine times business if you try to think about uh, if you look past or through the cycle or, or what it looks like on a normalized basis. So, um, and I just, it was also, that's another thing that I found pretty surprising is you can have that conversation with a broker and they'll, they'll just be very emphatic about the, the valuation being, you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, competitive and, and, and there's a market for it, but then you'll see it sit for six months. And I think that's also, I think a lot of these challenges in these um, you know, time killers is, is, is sort of related to this inefficiency of the broker model. Um, there's some, some, some obviously proprietary challenges that you'll face, but um, you know, brokers are generally happy. And, and by the way, not all brokers are created equal. So um, you know, some great brokers on Twitter that I've met and a couple that I've, I've interacted with through this process, but they're content kind of keeping a, a diversified portfolio of listings, you know, and, and letting it sit and, you know, it, it's basically fishing expedition. So as a searcher, it's, uh, you got to have a little bit of discipline and then, you know, you might want to be tempted to reach out, which I actually don't think it's a bad idea to reach out and, and kind of, you know, in, submit some level of interest and hang around the hoop. Um, Cause I do think opportunities come from that, but, you know, really don't spend your time spending, you know, doing a sort of analysis on it in the meantime. And, and so essentially just write off a business whose valuation is, is outside of that, that, that two to four, or is, is that, that's where you save time and, or, um, make sure you look at the, you know, when you're looking at the revenues, if there was a, if there was a COVID effect, a positive COVID effect, quickly look for that so that you can kind of normalize revenue, uh, and then see it, see what the valuation is in normal times and make sure again, that, that, uh, that it's worth your time and it's at a fair valuation. Is that, is that the opportunity to save time here? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, yeah. I, I, I typically won't even reach out to a broker if it's, you know, five or six times SDE, because I know it's only going to get worse once you start digging into it. But, um, yeah, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. Heather, do you see uh, valuation being a time waster for any of your searcher clients? Definitely. Um, I totally agree with uh, Ryan that sometimes you just need to let, let a deal sit. They may be on a fishing expedition. So we'll often as bankers see that same deal, you know, nine, 12 months after the first time we saw it. So that tells us something too. It, it, it was on the market for a long time. Maybe the second time we see it, the valuation has come down. But ultimately, yeah, it's a two to four uh, X market and anything priced above that that's a small company is probably going to be a waste of your time. And I think the normalization of EBITDA is also a really important point. We're gonna size debt to normalized EBITDA. Um, and so, we're not really going to tell you what you should pay for it, but given there's if there's a big gap, uh, delta between normalized EBITDA that we size debt to and what you're paying for the company, that's all paid for with equity. And then you need to plug that into your return on equity or invested capital model and decide if that's worth it to you. And I think that's usually a maybe a, a fast way to get to a no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about valuation, if you're if you're planning to do kind of a standard structure of of ten percent down or fifteen percent down, and then ten or fifteen percent seller note, and the rest an SBA loan, I mean, there there is an there is an anchoring effect that the loan for you guys for the loan to pencil that uh, means that you just no matter what what the seller is saying, you just can't go higher than that than that range. Is that do I have that right, Heather? Well, you can, but you're going to be paying for it all with equity, and that is going to that that's going to impact your model quite a bit, and, and that may be the easiest way for you to figure out that you really don't want to do that. Do you ever find that searchers are able to use that point as as a a pushback on the on the on the valuation negotiation? Like, look, the, you know, 
Live Oak does these loans week in and week out, and their range is this, and you know the standard the standard structure is ten ten eighty, and you know you're asking me to do something that would cause me to put in a lot more equity than is standard. Uh, therefore, you know you're kind of you're overvaluing your business based on this this big data set that that Live Oak sees all you know and is is working with. That works definitely. I mean, there a lot of times you can use the bank as the bad guy. That certainly works yeah. in a lot of different situations. Um, I think even more importantly, it's the bank decided that normalized EBITDA is X, uh, even though broker is trying to push non-normalized EBITDA or a much higher number. Um, I think you know you can maybe sometimes use the bank's reasoning as to why we think that uh, as part of your discussion or your, your negotiation. Great. Okay. Stupid margins, Ryan, was was deal killer number two. What are stupid margins? What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy to see. I mean it's actually a very high percentage of deals uh, that are listed um, that will have you know fifty plus percent margins, um, and so they'll advertise it you know as a as a million dollar EBITDA business. And um, I mean usually you'll see kind of in the summary blurb that that there might be only two million in revenue and. Um, you know, I've, I've spent some time uh, out of curiosity looking into some of these businesses and, and really what it, it usually what it means is the and it shouldn't be surprising, but, um, you know, the owners is either wearing a lot of different hats, uh, you know, running, driving a lot of the business. There's very little infrastructure in place. So there's you know, no operating expenses. Um, so it just introduces a lot of key man risk. Um, again, you see this in contract, you know, contracting businesses or professional services businesses sometimes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and this, I think it also applies to kind of just trends in general or financial trends in the financials in general, where you should kind of have a good sense of what the industry should be doing. Um, uh, you know, either from other deals you've looked at or publicly traded comps, hopefully where, you know, it, they're not going to do, you know, a landscaping business is not going to have a, a much better margin than Brightview, right? Um, if right. not, there's something, if, if so, there's something, uh, there's something there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, for example, here, I, I, I had a broker that convinced me to, to meet with a, it was a, a lighting business. Um, I drove five hours uh, to meet with this guy for a million dollar EBITDA business, realized quickly there was 2 million of revenue. It was husband and wife working out of home. He was really a good sales guy. He'd, he'd already kind of built this business up and sold it in the past. And now this was more of a hobby project. And it was, you know, just quickly, you know, it's a buying a job, a sales job, uh, which you're not going to do better than the, 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 the seller, you know, that's already doing it. So, uh, you know, you have to really think through the value that you're buying or the value that you're paying for these businesses is, is a lot to do with the infrastructure around it, the people and the assets and the brand. And um, these stupid margin businesses, uh, they're generally kind of, uh, you know, one or two man operations, uh, you know, sometimes out of, out of their home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is, so, and that scares you off as opposed to, okay, well, there's, this seller doesn't understand that in fact, you know, the way I'm going to approach this business is I'm going to need to replace them. And so therefore, you know, the, my, my, the SDE is going to immediately, uh, the day, the day I take ownership or the day I put in a general manager is going to immediately compress. Um, and I should, we should really be talking valuation based on that future, you know, that future SDE is that not, are those not conversations you even, you even go down the path with, cause you, your experience tells you that they just won't see it that way. Um, it, it where, where's the opportunity to save time? Because by itself, even though even though I'm not going to take their margin, that stupidly high margin at face value, it still it still tells me something, and not and something maybe not 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 necessarily a deal breaker. Um, I don't necessarily interpret interpret that as a deal breaker. So, what would elaborate on that for me? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think if it's if it's a you know, it, it might be unique to the individual searcher if it's something that they maybe have you know operating history in, um, and that's one thing. But again, as as a you know, first time searcher not you know, looking at sectors that are relatively new to me, um, you know, it, it would scare me because you're really facing more than just a, a potential revenue headwind of losing that, that, that key employee that's, that's driving probably a lot of the top line. But mm -hmm. then you, it's really hard to get a handle of, of what the expenses are or really the, the capex you need to put into this business to scale it. So, um, yeah, it would be, it'd be really tricky, especially again, if, if it's, I mean, also, like if you think about just the simple math of taking a, a business from 50% EBITDA margin to what is like a normal industry 
you know, op, you know EBITDA margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't think any valuation. Um, that's a huge. That's a huge gap to bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heather, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I summed that up as the way the banker will see that is you are buying a job. You and as Ryan said, you will probably not be able to do as good a job as the seller. So there's that right there. That even if you were trying to replace him, your EBITDA might go down a bit right there because you're not as good. Uh, seller owns the relationships. That's always really risky. Um, and if, even if you were to replace the seller with an employee, is the employee going to be able to do as good a job? I mean, that's a big risk too. So you, it, it really just um, buy a job is just not a good um, financing scenario for a bank. And so, and stupid what, margins really mm-hmm. say it really is a sign. It's a really uh, good sign that you're probably buying a job. Yeah, I mean, what what we're saying here is basically the stupid margins is kind of a proxy for this the business being too reliant on the seller, essentially. Um, how, and so, Heather, what's what's the ideal? I mean, I assume the ideal is like a management layer, and you know, the the seller is absentee. I mean, and it actually is a really high functioning business, and the seller's never there. Like that's the ideal ideal, but um, we don't we probably don't see that very often. What what is the what is a happy happy medium between that ideal and this and this you know kind of worst case stupid margin case um, that that kind of is um, is functional and you see more commonly. Well, just normalize margins and, a, and an org chart that shows that the seller's not pr- wearing all the hats, that he's got some key people in place that uh, will continue on with the business after, after transition. That's really what we're looking for in general. Great. Okay. Or you could be a tech business with uh, recurring revenue and it's, you know, just by, yeah, just by virtue of business model, it's a actually high margin business, but. Right. Those aren't the ones I'm looking at. Right. Right. Uh, and, and the valuations on those probably won't uh, be very friendly to an SBA loan. Size, Ryan, is is time killer number three. Yeah, this one's an interesting one because when I when I network with a lot of different searchers, I feel I feel like we've had this conversation. I've had a conversation with all of them. We're, we're at some point tempted to go down market. You see a listing, and there are a lot more of them at the at the smaller size call, like the 150k of EBITDA, 200k or SDE. And you, you know, you're, you're like, okay, well, that's, that's enough to live on. Uh, and, you know, you have a lot of confidence in your ability to grow the business. Um, but end of day, it's, it's, it actually will, and, you know, there's, maybe there's less capital you have to put into the business up front. Um, and so you, you kind of view it as lower risk. But reality is the smaller the business, especially at that, that size, is you're introducing a lot more risk. I mean, we're already kind of in a, in a really – you know, it, small business is inherently risky. And then when you go down market to that size, these are pretty fragile businesses. And then on top of that, if you're going to try to grow it, um, again, you're going to end up putting in more capital down the road. So I'd rather, you know, do a deal that requires 500K, you know, to a million of equity and, you know, be able to fund the growth with cash flow versus putting 50K in. And then, you know, every time you're trying to make a hire, buy a truck or, you know, increased marketing spend is not coming out of your, your, your pocket. Um, so I, and I think the other thought here too is, you know, there's really a sweet spot here for economics, for searchers, um, where your cost of capital is kind of lowest at the largest size deal you can fund. So I mean that both from like an SBA standpoint, because you can get, you know, the maximum amount of leverage, assuming, you know, you're doing it, um, on a business that can cover it, that cover the cash flow conservatively. But, um, you know, you, you get the maximum amount of leverage from the SBA, but then also too, if you're going to equity investors, um, you know, they're going to, they're going to be more interested in larger deals just again, because of going back to that risk point I made earlier. So, um, it's, uh, it's tempting, I think, uh, for a lot of folks. Um, and I also like the, the idea too, of, of, you know, it's easier when you have an asset, right. That you can go find out other assets and bolt on, but, um, I would anticipate putting in a lot more capital after, after you've made that purchase. And what, so what range of EBITDA is the sweet spot? And, and I assume whatever you're going to say is where you're looking. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the self-funded searchers will, will kind of push it towards about a million and EBITDA is like a good bogey. I, I'm kind of, you know, 750 to one, one and a quarter, I, I can go as low as 500 K I think and get comfortable depending on the business. But, um, yeah, n- n- nothing sub of 500 K I won't even, I won't even look at it anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Heather, you're nodding your head. Oh, yes, totally agree with this one. Um, our minimum enterprise value to lend on is a million. And even then, I don't really feel great about it. Um, and I think it, what Ryan said is really interesting way to, of looking at it. it. The cost of capital does go down <clears throat> the, the further up market you go. And uh, the, the beauty of having this great search fund investor network is that you don't need to buy too small of a company. Um, you have access to capital, both in terms of debt and equity. Um, and so, you know, it is within reach for most searchers if they find a good deal to go a little bit up market. And we, we really dislike small deals. They are fragile companies and it is very tough to put leverage on them. Heather, there are, I have three follow-up questions to what you just said. First, so when you said you, you guys won't lend on a, on a, on a deal that, where the enterprise value is less than a million, so just backing out on that, assuming a 3x as an average, so that's basically 350 SDE, um, if, 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 we're, if we're thinking about things in terms of, of how much money, how much cash it generates. So 350, 400 is kind of the, is kind of the, the floor of businesses. Okay. Um, when you say the cost, you both have said the cost of capital goes down as the purchase price goes up. Um, can you spell that out for me? Well, I guess uh, if you think about it from just the equity perspective, right? If you were to go out to investors and you were, you know, say the deal needed 50K of equity and you were going to go out and raise capital around that, hey, I don't even think anyone would touch it, but maybe, maybe you are taking capital the terms are not going to be as favorable as, you know, some of the stuff that you're seeing out of, uh, you know, these self-funded searcher investment groups where, you know, it, they're, it's pretty attractive economics. It can be. So mm -hmm. where, you know, you're taking money in, you know, you might be taking in $10 of cash, but really giving up, you know, $3 of, of ownership. Um, and you're not going to get that in these smaller deals. I mean, you, you, you may not even get that, you know, 500 K EBITDA or 750, you know, that's kind yeah. of where it starts. Sorry, I agree. As a debt provider, it's risk reward and an equity provider is going to be the same thing. So if we're going to see small deals as higher risk, we want to get paid more if, if we're going to lend or provide equity into those spaces. So it is definitely more expensive uh, capital uh, the smaller you, you go. Yeah. Yeah. So so in, in fact, you're actually being punished in, in, a, in a word as the searcher if you bring a smaller deal because the source of your capital, be it debt or be it equity, uh, perceives that as a riskier, a riskier investment. That's right. Heather, you said, lastly, you said, um, you, you know, you can find that capital. Um, you know, if I'm just somebody who's kind of new to search, listening to this conversation, and I don't have connections, I don't know anybody, I've just kind of found this on the this concept of search on the internet. And I keep hearing people talk about how, you know, all these investors, this investor community, how easy it is, if you have a good deal to get an investor. W um, where, where do I start? Well, that's a good question. So first, you need to sort of get to know the investor network. Um, so just classic networking, you need to get to know some other searchers, maybe attend a conference, um, look around online. There are several resources online that uh, actually list the names of some of the investors. But um, just like raising debt, you, you've got to go meet them. You've got to impress them with uh, yourself, first of all, um, and your thesis, what you're looking for, and, and try to find the investors whose uh, appetite uh, for for risk, uh, you know, matches your thesis um, so that you can sort of cultivate a group of at least a few investors that, you know, if you find a, a deal that meets their criteria, that they would probably be interested. But it's classic networking really yeah. is the best way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Okay, this, this um, size of acquisition time killer leads in naturally to the, the fourth one, bolt on versus platform. What did you mean by that, Ryan? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it overlaps with size. Um, also even, even the margin point, I think, you know, there could potentially be a good bolt on. Um, but yeah, you, you'll see a lot of deals. I mean, that's the broker's job. They're going to market it as a platform the best they can. They're going to, they're going to take whatever the seller provides them and put together a SIM that shows that they do have a management team in place. They do have systems and processes, but reality is, is you, you it, does, it won't take long when digging in, uh, in preliminary due diligence to find that, um, you know, this business is really um, at best a bolt on and that's where it'll, that's what I'll eventually trade as. And, um, you know, I, I, I just I guess for an example, I met with a you know, landscaping business um, and yeah, the, the seller told me straight up. Uh, all right. I mean, they operate out of a parking lot, um, not even don't really have an office. Um, 
you know, no systems, no process, no crew leads. He, he leads the, the whole team and he'd worked at a landscaper six years ago. Um, saw the opportunity, grew this, you know, went on his own, grew it to a decent sized business. But for me, it doesn't, it's not a good fit, right? Because I need, I, I can't immediately be focused on building everything from scratch. I need some semblance of a team in place um, or, you know, some type of systems and process uh, to work from. Uh, otherwise, I think you'll get kind of caught into that, you know, working in the business versus on the business from day one. Um, and it can be tempting because it's, again, once you have that asset, maybe you can make it into a platform. But uh, I think it's to be hard enough to find a good platform um, at, a, at attractive value uh, to build from. So I'd avoid anything that smells like a, a bolt-on. Mm-hmm. Anything to add there, Heather? Yeah, I, I would say this one's interesting because I think most lenders wouldn't be able to detect this as well as the actual searcher. So this is one where we might not be really your safety net. Um, it's really dependent on you uh, doing your diligence and asking those questions and kind of having this in mind um, when you do that. Because uh, to a banker, it's a little little harder to detect this. And a lot of bankers won't ask these types of questions to figure this out. Great. Industries with PE, private equity interest. This is going to be an interesting one. This was this was your number five time killer, Ryan. Take me through it. Yeah. Um, so look, I, I'll, I'll preface it by saying I, I'm curious. I mean, I'm interested in, in private equity business or businesses that private equity is interested in. Right. There's proof of concept there. There's a comfort around, you know, terminal value. There's potential opportunity for multiple arbitrage. I, I like those types of businesses. Um, you know, going back to my, my PE roll up days, but uh, it's. The challenge there is that you're you, if you're going into or if you're you're going into a competitive process with a private equity buyer, and by the way, that also includes private equity spot you know backed platforms, which are also trickier to find you know trickier, trickier to be aware of. Um, it's it's going to be tough. So they they have greater access to resources. Um, they will get under LOI quickly. They have no problem with 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 getting under LOI. Uh, it's a lot of sellers like you know the high the limited like the low amount of execution risk involved with those types of deals um but so i guess my advice on this and i hate giving advice as a searcher that hasn't actually executed a deal yet but <laughs> my my thought is is uh if you're going to do it um just be kind of quick and nimble about it so you, you you'll see a deal uh you know be quick to um you know quickly uh, underwrite it and, and 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 try to submit an loi so you can be competitive um, but don't spend time again, you know, creating analysis around it. If you know there's a potential that there's, you know, in market PE interest, um, because I've had that where, you know, I, I, for example, I had a broker that I thought had a really good relationship and this happened two or three times where I asked him, I was like, I want to see deals in this sector. You know, I will be quick. I, you know, I have, you know, all of the capital lined up. It shouldn't be an issue. And submit my LOI, you know, go dark for a few days and then oh, they're under contract with somebody else. You know, it, the brokers are, uh, you know, again, overgeneralization, but many brokers will be happy to feed a, a PE sponsored or you know, PE backed platform um, because that, that's, that'll, that's better. They'll feed them on a recurring basis. Um, and it's also kind of lower execution risk. So be mindful that also your bid will, will be potentially shopped to those guys as well. So um, look, I think there's, there's opportunity in that space, the pre, PE, you know, sectors that, uh, you know, just under their radar, or maybe they're just below the scale that gets them interested. And that's actually kind of where I spent a lot of my time. But, you know, I I wouldn't get too excited about a deal um, where it might be pretty competitive. And but Ryan, why what you just said there at the tail end was going to be my question. Why is that not a great strategy? So if PE, let's say arbitrary, Charlie, or kind of roughly, they stopped looking at a million dollars EBIT on below. So why isn't it an awesome opportunity to buy the six, 800 EBITDA business in an industry where there's a lot of private equity interest um, with the expectation that, you know, you have, you have these ready buyers once you, you grow the business a little bit, that seems like a, a great playbook. I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I like that uh, thesis, I guess. Um, I would also say though, you have to be cognizant where there's you know, strategics, again, that are PE back that will go down a little bit below that. Um, I mean, there, there's competition regardless. But yeah, I think um, 
at that size, anything above a million is really where I think it starts to get more competitive, a million in EBITDA. And, um, and I'd say too, also though, searchers, uh, we do, I think, have a little bit of an advantage depending on what the seller's true goal is in the sale process. Um, you know, the sellers that I like the most are the ones that care about their employees, they care about their brand, they care about their legacy. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them have seen PE come through town, maybe they've acquired a, a competitor, you know, they have a shorter investment horizon, you know, where if you can go in and convince them that you're or her that you're, you're buying it to own and operate over the long term, take care of their employees, take care of their customers, preserve their brand, be a steward for, for the business that they've built. Uh, I do think that goes a long way with, with the right sellers. Um, but sometimes, you know, sellers are looking for, you know, they're burnt out and I just want to, you know, just think about after tax proceeds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you hear people say that, you know, kind of appealing to the sellers, kind of like their emotional attachment to the business and, and, and interest in seeing it live on after them. Um, but that, that, that is, I just, I just want to echo what you said. I mean, that's a very real thing. And, and, you know, you hear it even more in traditional search where traditional searchers are looking for larger businesses. And so they're, they're, having to compete almost certainly with, you know, bigger capital, bigger, deeper pockets, private equity, and so on. So the only thing that they can really say is like, I'll, I'll be, you know, a responsible steward of your business. I'm a, I'm a human, meet me, and so on. It's, it's really the only differentiator, one of the only differentiators they have, um, or competitive advantages, maybe I should, I should call it. Uh, Heather, what, what are your thoughts on this private equity um, concept? Yeah. Very interesting in the last few years uh, how much uh, smaller a company private equity can is interested in these days. Um, I think the multiples are certainly attracting them. Um, and uh, there are certain industries where uh, they'll sort of heat things up and they will, uh, it, it would be very tough for a searcher to win a deal against them if they find something that they like. So definitely not something to to waste your time on and and definitely to be careful about the brokers who might just be using your offer to shop around. Um, it, it, it definitely happens. Fortunately, there are so many niche industries out there that I don't think PE would ever really be that interested in. Uh, they're too different and um, they don't really fit on a platform. So I think, um, you know, you tend to find searchers looking in those spaces uh, where they know they will they will not have that kind of competition. Uh, let's move on to number six, where where um, we probably got we got time for probably just a few more. So number six was market. Ryan, what did you mean by market? Yeah, so I, I've kind of fallen into this trap where I'll, I'll look and look at a business, take a deep deeper dive on it, with the hope that uh, I will get so enamored with the business that I will overlook uh, the market that it's in, and magically convince my wife and I to to completely relocate our lives into. Uh, you know, a, a, a place that doesn't necessarily fit our preference. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, and I kind of joke, I think there's really a, uh, and then separate from that, there's there's a lot of market considerations as it relates to the deal, right, in terms of opportunity, as well as valuation. So, um, you know, I, I will spend less time, again, on these on these markets. Um, you know, I, I, for example, I looked at a, a, a cut and sew manufacturer that, that, that made a product that I actually really like. Uh, it was a great size. Uh, it was a little expensive, but it was in a market that was prohibitively expensive for us to live in, uh, especially when it factored in the price of the business and our you know, economics after cons you know, considering my wife would have to leave her job, most likely. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, you have to kind of balance all these when you think about where you're actually going to be. And I, and I think um, when you think, you know, traditional uh, search model, right? You know, a lot of the investors will make sure that you're, you know, completely geographically agnostic. I think that that's easier said than done. And I think uh, if you really kind of boil it down, people are, you know, they're obviously, they're going to, there's going to be a natural preference to certain areas and certain states, certain cities. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ignore that. Heather, do you have any thoughts on, on market? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I agree with Ryan. Most people just are going to have their preferences, and that's why uh, there, if you if you do find a deal in a place where maybe a lot of people don't want to live, you might actually get a pretty good valuation. So there's the other yeah. side of that. If you really are truly yeah. willing to do it, um, there's going to be a limited number of buyers, and therefore probably a better price. But you know, but I still don't see that many deals transacted in places like that either. Yeah. Ryan, at the at the start, you said where you were looking, and it was a pretty wide swath. But um, is that narrowed by you just want to live in a metropolitan market? So really, it's actually a handful of five to ten cities. 
Uh, well, I'm actually kind of looking in, I'd probably classify as like tier two, tier three metro markets. Cause I, mm-hmm. again, I, I'm actually getting the most traction too. So again, on the proprietary outreach, like, you know, there's, there's some markets that are, you know, call it 150,000 populations so definitely s- small cities that, um, that, you know, the sellers haven't been pestered by searchers or PE and, you know, they're actually open to taking your call. And if, if you have a actual, you know, inroad for being there, um, you know, we're, we're now in the Southeast, so it's a little bit easier to have a conversation. I think it goes a long way. Um, whereas, you know, if you're reaching out to businesses in Miami, it's, it's going to be pretty tough. It's, it's just, just inherently more competitive, but I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just getting a lot more traction in, you know, a market like Sarasota. Sure. You, you have a couple of examples listed here, um, getting outbid in Charlotte, Charleston, uh, yes. the remote, the uh, remote beach town. What are any stories behind these examples? Yeah. So yeah, I told you about the manufacturer that was in Washington. Uh, couldn't get comfortable with living there after doing a decent amount of work on it. Um, then yeah, when I was looking, you know, spending a lot of time in Charleston, Charlotte, um, driving all over, uh, it was, it was kind of crazy for a while. Uh, ho- I think things are kind of hopefully settling down a little bit, but late last year, I mean, businesses in those markets were on fire. So, I mean, they were listing for, you know, businesses that, for example, I looked at a business that almost was almost identical in Sarasota that traded four times. And then four weeks later, a business listed in Charleston, almost identical in terms of characteristics for, and traded for seven times. It was, so really? it's, yeah, it's huge disparity. Ryan, you say that you, you will look at other deal. You, you'll look at deals in other markets just to, to continue to educate yourself. What, what do you do there? Yeah. So if, uh, yeah, if I see a listing in another market that I know that I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily pursue, I might look at it just to get a sense for, uh, you know, like I was telling you before about KPIs, what are, what are reasonable margins? What are, what are they doing? Best practices? Um, you know, if there are any good diligence questions that come out of that, but again, I won't, I won't do actual work or spend too much time on it, um, beyond that. And then, yeah, I guess the other downside too, that we're missing going back to the the other point on terms of valuation is that there is, there's, there's more, there's another reason besides the fact that it's it's a great place to live. And it's, it's also, there's a lot more growth opportunities, um, you know, in some larger markets, uh, and so, you know, there's one business that I really liked, uh, everything about it, other than the fact that it was in a remote beach town where I think it would just be really challenging to grow that business. There was a limited amount of competition, which was good. Um, but at the same time, if I was looking to grow, you know, I like fragmented markets, looking for opportunities to grow acquisition down the road or even attracting talent, uh, it could get really challenging, I think, in some of those places. Yeah, yeah. Heather, how, how much do you, when you're doing a loan, do you look at the growth? Like, how do you think about the growth potential for a business the searcher's looking at? That's a great question because a lot of folks don't realize that as a lender, that's one of the lesser important criteria for us. So a lender always looks at sort of um, the worst case scenario of historical cash flow. So we're going to adjust it. And then we're going to think worst case, if we lost a customer or we hit a down cycle or whatever it might be, could this loan still be repaid? And and almost all of our decision is really centered around that that, uh, thought process. Now, um, then we'll look at the growth um, more from a risk perspective. Are you going to try to grow too fast? Are you going to have to spend too much money to grow? Is, Is the type of growth you want to engage in going to introduce risk? because we're all about protecting that sort of historical nest egg that we have rather than the growth. And and the whole simple answer, the reason why is a lender does not have upside. All we have is downside. We're going to either get paid back with at a particular interest rate that's already been set and determined, uh, or we're going to lose money. So we're all about not losing money. And, uh, and, and so growth is great. And we w- we're certainly excited to see it happen. And, and we understand that that's what searchers are, are here to do. But when we underwrite, we really only think of the growth in terms of what might go wrong uh, and how it might hurt what we do have. And, and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Great. Such, such a, a valuable point. Got time for two more here. Ryan, did you have something you wanted to add? 
Uh, I actually do want to add something on that. So I, I, there are some lenders, though, that will stay away from certain markets. Um, you know, it goes back to kind of the point where, you know, maybe they were burned there in the past. So, um, for example, I had a lender that didn't want to touch a deal in South Florida. Um, they just, you know, and I think that might become more and more common as we kind of get later, later cycle or, you know, if we're in a recession now, who knows. But, um, you know, I think a lot of banks might pull away from states that uh, are regions that, you know, what we saw kind of during the great financial crisis was sand states got crushed. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of banks will may shy away from those types of deals. Um, <laughs> it, you know, if there's an over-concentration or they start pulling back credit. I will, I will add to that just that banks, bankers have scars and they might be a geographic, they could be all kinds of different scars, but when, when something uh, looks similar to, to a bad deal that we've had or, or experienced, it, it really is a, a quick turn off and, and you'll see that a lot um, if, if banks have had bad experience. And, and to Ryan's point, if, we, if the recession sort of causes more stress on credit um, in banks, then you're, those are all gonna be new scars and uh, whatever the lessons learned from those are, are gonna you know, tighten up credit in those ways. And so that, that is sort of how the cycle works. Heather, do you have any searcher scars that you can be public about or give us an example of? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Uh, you know, sure. Um, there are certain industries we've learned. I, I won't go into specifics, but I'll say that we've learned in certain industries that there's the ethics are not very good. Um, ah. What you know, what a seller thinks is perfectly fine, and the way they've represented things we found later was you know, effect, effectively misrepresentation. But they but they had no problem with it, and we sort of saw that similar pattern in other businesses of the same industry, and sort of formed a, an idea around that. So sometimes we we develop opinions that way. Um, another one that I I can think of is an example where uh, a searcher relied on um, a gap. Uh, you know, they converted cash uh, accounting to gap on their own and uh, based their that was the EBITDA that they were buying, and they didn't do it correctly. They did not get a quality of earnings. And so I think, you know, that's another scar is, it, you know, any anything that's got to be heavily adjusted should absolutely have a quality of earnings, a third party, um, you know, look at, at that, a deep dive on the forensic accounting. So I think those are two just ethics in certain industries and make sure you get a Q of E if there's if everything's not completely straightforward in your numbers. Heather, I so want to know what this crooked industry is. <laughs> There's more than one, but I'm just uh, give you one example. But there, uh, there are more than one, and, and and that is something to to really be careful about. And that that's something that would you be if a searcher took you a particular deal that you would you'd be able to say to them privately. This is an I, industry. I would. Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. Crooked industries. That's going to be the subject of an upcoming <laughs> pod. Red flags, uh, Ryan is is your next time killer. Sure. Um, so look, I, I think uh, a lot of the opportunity that, that, that exists in the SMB space is, is, is kind of offset by a lot of uh, risk, right? So it's really the Wild West, and um, I, it doesn't cease to surprise me uh, some of the things that I've been seeing. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I think, a little bit more risk averse, but if there's one or two red flags, depending on what they are, I will usually kind of go pencils down pretty quickly. So, um, you know, red flags are pretty obvious, but, you know, uh, unreported income, that's something I see a lot in the Twitter sphere. Uh, some brokers have mentioned it. They'll try to, you know, they'll try to price a deal on it. It's crazy. Um, uh, aggressive ad backs, it's more obvious. Like that's a more common one, uh, although I don't think that would in itself be a deal killer, but um, something you definitely would want to be skeptical of. Uh, lawsuits. That's, that's something I've noticed kind of just, I'll do some Google research on, on, you know, senior management or the partnership. And then you'll, you'll be surprised that, you know, they might've had a falling out where a, a previous partner sued the existing partner that you're buying from. And I don't know, usually, you know, maybe there's, there's, there's ways to kind of immunize yourself from that risk down the road. But to me, I think, you know, when you take uh, multiple red flags on, uh, usually there's a much larger you know, there's potential issues unknown to you down the road. Um, and I had this kind of, there's this, this simple concept. I was just networking with another searcher who just recently recapped his business. So he kind of basically was 
treading water for the last five years. And, it, and he, he attributed it almost entirely to the fact that he bought his business from, uh, excuse my French, an asshole. And mm-hmm. he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't know it. Um, and until, you know, they closed the deal. And then day one, he lost like a couple of key employees. And then the, the rest of the employees basically demanded huge raises because they, they were, you know, very disgruntled and they knew, you know, they had some leverage and he was, he went from being excited to, to grow this business to just completely putting out fires. Um, and that was leading into, you know, once he, I think he gotten everything stabilized and COVID hit. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that you, you, you always want to be mindful of. And it's, there's enough out there in the public domain nowadays where you can, you could definitely find, uh, just from a Google search, you don't even need to be doing background checks to find bad reviews or employees complaining on, uh, you know, employment websites. Uh, so things like that, uh, usually for me, will I might go pencils down pretty quickly if depending on the flag. And, and so, and, and so the, t- the way to save time here is, as you said, just to kind of put your pencil down and stop working on the deal rather than maybe the temptation of a searcher might be, especially as a searcher, gets desperate, uh, you know, it's been months, they're looking for a deal, um, to rationalize how they can overcome the bad reviews on whatever, on Google, or they can correct the toxic relationship that the seller has with his employees. It's like, no, just, just skip it. I think bad reviews, well, it depends on how bad. It was right? choosing but those it, arbitrarily. It, it, yeah. As examples. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I don't think they're all created equal. Um, but if again, if, if, if somebody's trying to sell a, a business on unreported income, uh, I, you just have to think about all the ripple effects that 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 person probably had on that business. So, what is the culture really like? You know, are people are you know are they potentially stealing from customers? I mean, and then there's obviously all those liabilities associated with that down the road that you could potentially, you know, obviously you could try to immunize yourself that from like a legal perspective. But then there's just operational risk, right? Of 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 losing employees, losing customers. Um, you know, again, like going back to, I think a point you made earlier, it's like you're buying a large part, the brand employees, um, you know, the ability to, to grow this business. And again, if you're, uh, you know, turnaround situations, um, based off of poor ethics, uh, are really, I think really difficult to, to execute on. Heather, what do you think? Totally agree. I mean, it's a non-starter for us if someone, you know, shows us that the seller's not reporting something or doing something, you know, wrong on purpose for some, you know, quote unquote tax advantage. Um, You know, the gray area with that is is the ad backs where, uh, you know, they're running personal expenses through the business and they're selling the business saying, hey, these are personal. They weren't really business. Even we accept some of those, but I even have a hard time with that, to be quite honest, because um, where's the line, you know, and uh, uh, it, it's and there's many of those that we'll just kind of throw out. Um, but I think anytime you're looking at uh, buying a business from someone who's putting out there right up front that they're they're not doing things properly, that's a red flag. You need to really dig deeper. The adbacks one is so gray, though, because, I mean, you know, any accountant will will talk about how small business ownership, one of the great advantages of small business ownership is that you can run your personal life through the business. So, I mean, in, in some ways, this, some of that behavior is practically encouraged by your, 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 account, your accountant. Heather, I think you said that some things were some, within, within this, um, this, the pool of ad, potential addbacks, and um, there are some addbacks that are deal breakers that if they're, if they're trying to add back, if they're expensing something that they shouldn't, can you give me an example of one that's just like crosses the line? I've seen many that cross the line very, very far. Um, they'll run uh, a hobby. You know, I had one uh, who was into car racing and his mechanic and everything to do with that hobby was in all kinds of parts of the, the pro- profit and loss statement. It, it was, uh, it was crazy. Um, I've seen people run food, like including their groceries uh, for yeah. their entire family, you know, it, it gets out of control. Um, and, uh, and, and we don't, that's just a, that's just, it's not only do I not want to add back the number, but I really want to think twice about whether I want to lend to anybody in that business at all. Great. Very clear. Okay. Uh, let's do one more. 
Ryan. Um, and, and just, again, this is a list of 15 and, uh, you're, you can download that list of 15, um, with the link in the show notes. Um, but let's do, we're on number eight here. So, so wrap us up with number eight, Ryan. Yeah. So, uh, needs to pencil, uh, effectively needs to support leverage. So, uh, again, what I'm trying to do here is, is essentially a micro LVL, right? So these businesses should be, Ryan, what, um, yeah. please, uh, LBO? Uh, leverage buyout, right. A, a so, micro leverage uh, buyout. Go ahead. Micro, what is that? micro leverage buyout. Yeah. So we're effectively, there's a, there's a component of financial engineering here that, that, you know, that, that improves returns, right. Responsibly. So you think about buying a business at four times, you know, zero growth, um, you know, that kind of translates to a 25% IRR, but once you start introducing debt, you can really uh, improve the returns of the business and, and growth and all, the, all that good stuff. But the business should be able to support that debt. Uh, I like to think of it through the cycle, right? So uh, I kind of underwrite it to a, a downside case of what a, a, you know, a recession would be um, and, you know, whether or not that could support, uh, you know, the debt service uh, and, um, you know, and then expected capital expenditures and my salary, right? Um, because you do hear, I've heard from a few searchers that have had kind of the nightmare scenario of, of buying a business and, and business goes away. And then all of a sudden you're contributing capital to the business. You're, you know, you're not taking salary anymore. And, and so I guess you should always, I, I always think about deals in terms of the maximum amount of, of debt it could take on. So, um, and a rule of thumb that I think about in terms of valuation for that is, is, um, it's about four and a half times, really. Is the maximum? If you wanted to max out, max out SBA debt, um, you really you're going to be pushing it if you're paying over four and a half times. And then to Heather's point earlier, above that, you it's fine. You can do deals above that. Um, you're just going to have to contribute more equity, um, which means that you'll probably you'd have to have a stronger case for growth. Um, and especially if you're you're raising that equity, then again, you better have a, a pretty good story behind why you think that you can grow that business. Um, but I don't know. I think, uh, um, yeah. And then I guess beyond just valuation, right. Um, a lot of banks will look at really the industry, you know, the business characteristics, some things are not financeable. So, uh, again, to the, all those kind of attractive characteristics we, we described earlier, but, you know, evergreen businesses, uh, stable cash flow, recurring revenue, uh, all those types of things are attractive to lenders and guess what? They're attractive to me as well. And so usually if, if it's a business that I know that I'm going to really struggle to, to get debt put onto it uh, and be worried about being able to service that debt down the road, then I will either negotiate on the, on the, on the valuation or walk away. Mm -hmm. So getting, can, getting kind of lender endorsement of the industry before you spend too much time looking at a deal in that industry. Go yeah. ahead. Heather. And I, and I, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just thinking of an example today. Um, I have a deal that uh, we, we spent a lot of time on. There's a lot of noise in the numbers. Definitely, there's a good company in there, but but very hard to figure out normalized EBITDA. Long story short, we declined it, um, and another bank has approved it. And that searcher is coming back to me, and he might walk away from the deal, you know, just because of our input on declining it. So I think I think the the story there is as a searcher, the, the bank is another set of eyes. Yeah. Um, and to the extent that we dug in deep and asked a lot of questions, um, you know, that, that helps, I think, um, whether it's a yes or a no. So maybe even the no helps you think, hmm, if the bank doesn't want to do it, maybe, maybe there, there's a point there. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Absolutely. Yeah. But as we're not I, always as right. I, we don't know. <laughs> as I've learned more and more about search, um, and, and come to appreciate, particularly with like a Live Oak or, or, or banks that really know search and are really active in a lot of search deals. Um, and, and you used the phrase earlier, Heather, that you're, the, the safety net, that you act as sort of a safety net or a second pair of eyes. That uh, and, and in fact, I did um, an interview just a couple of weeks ago. It hasn't aired yet with somebody who worked with your partner, Lisa Forrest, on a deal um, and really was um, singing her praises about how she really kind of helped, helped kind of coach them through the deal, get through the deal, like what to, what to look at. Um, I, I don't know if that's common uh, in, in other industries and other applications of debt, but it certainly seems like it's, uh, it's valuable that searchers have as a resource the, the lenders in the space that they do. Let's call it there. Um, 
why don't we, why don't we just, Ryan, please tell folks your, your Twitter handle. Um, I, I, and I'll just endorse you. I've, uh, seen you around on Twitter. Didn't know it was you. Um, so this is, <laughs> you, you have an anonymous handle, but, um, now people are going to know who you are. You're a great follow. Obviously this one piece of content, um, got Heather's attention, got my attention. Um, but it's not the only great piece of content you put out there. So I encourage people to follow you at SMB Quest, a, a great creative uh, name. Uh, clearly, I, I, I did not put much thought into put, to making that name, and uh, yeah, I've. Uh, but yeah, feel free to give me a follow. Um, DMs are open for searchers that want to compare notes. Um, self-funded investors open to having conversations, um, and then any any brokers that have deals that you know within the criteria that I've outlined, happy to happy to connect. It is a quest, I think. Search. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe it's a pretty apt, uh, apt name for a Twitter handle. And Heather, how can, how can people get in touch with you or, or connect with what Live Oak is doing uh, and, and find this piece of content? Is it going to be just right on Live Oak's website? T tell me where people should go. Yes. Yeah, so, so come to our website, uh, Live Oak Bank Search Fund Lending. You'll find our landing page. We've got all of our resources there, uh, recordings of podcasts, all kinds of great stuff. But uh, look for the time killers slide and uh, you can download it. It's a it's a two page PDF and it's got a little bit of a detail on each of these these 15 time killers. But I think it's just a, a great piece of content for searchers to think about as uh, they're deciding how to spend their valuable time. And, and as I said, there will be a link in the show notes, but go to the Live Oak page directly anyway, because there's a lot of other great content there that people can find. And Heather, what's your Twitter handle? It's Anderson Heather. But Anderson's hard to spell, so <laughs> but uh, you should be able to find me pretty easily. Great. Ryan, Heather, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you both very much for coming on. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you.